Good evening, please take a seat. My name is Jeff. It's my privilege to look with you for the first time at 2 Corinthians. Can I encourage you, uh, these next few months we're going to spend looking at 2 Corinthians. It's a letter. It's really not meant to be read in little chunks every Sunday once a week. It's meant to be read as a letter as a whole. Can I encourage you, have a go at doing it. Take you, I don't know, it wouldn't be an hour, surely, maybe half an hour or something like that. Just read it from beginning to end. It'll give you a real sense of the whole purpose of what Paul is trying to say. And then as we look at it chapter by chapter, little bit by little bit over these next few months, you'll get a sense of how it fits into the whole. So can I encourage you over this next week or two, have a go at reading the whole of 2 Corinthians. Uh, But for now, can I encourage you to have your Bible open? We're going to read together 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, think about what it means and how it applies to us. Let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Almighty God, our gracious and holy Heavenly Father, do please help us now to understand your word, that we may continue to grow in maturity in Christ. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Nabil Qureshi was born on the 13th of April, 1983, in California. Uh, Qureshi grew up in a close-knit family. His parents are from Pakistan, and they are devout Muslims. Uh, They taught Nabil about Islam, and because he grew up in America, so-called Christian America, they taught Nabil to to promote and defend his faith, the Islamic faith, in front of Christians. Nabil was a very smart guy. He did very well in school. He went on to university to study medicine. And there, while he was at university, Nabil met met, uh, a Christian man by the name of David Wood. They struck up friendship, and they spent lots of time discussing religion. They talked about Christianity, they talked about Islam. And over a period of about three years, Qureshi discovered that there were really satisfactory answers to his objections about Christianity. Meanwhile, at the same time, he started to see serious weaknesses in Islam. Until finally, in 2005, at the age of 22, much to the distress of his family, Nabil Qureshi put his faith in Jesus. He became a Christian. Qureshi finished his medical degree in 2009. He uh, went on to do some theological studies. And he got a job as an itinerant evangelist. He's travelled around telling people about Jesus. In February of 2014, Qureshi published his first book, and I know many people here have read it. It's called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. I have to say it's an excellent book, one of the better Christian books that I have read, and it's gone on to sell more than 250,000 copies. 2016, Qureshi published two more books, uh, Answering Jihad, A Better Way Forward, and No God But One, Allah or Jesus, A Former Muslim Investigates the Evidence for Islam and Christianity. Now, it looked like this man was going to become one of the most significant theologians of our time. He's greatly loved. He was also greatly hated. Uh, Islamic people all over the world, the things they say are said about him on the internet just make you blush. The, the terrible, terrible things that were said about this guy. He was greatly loved. He was greatly hated. But it looked like he was going to have a profound impact for good, a profound impact for Jesus among the nearly two billion Muslims in our world. But then on the day of the release of the book, No God But One, Qureshi made this statement. This is an announcement that I never expected to make. My family and I have received the news that I have advanced stomach cancer and the clinical prognosis is quite grim. Nonetheless, 
we're going to pursue healing aggressively, both medical and miraculous, relying on God. Friends and family, may I ask you to fast and pray fervently for my healing. I do not profess to know the will of the Lord, but many of my close friends and confidants are convinced that this is a trial through which the Lord intends to bring me alive and refined. May his will be done, and may may I invite you to seek him in earnest, on your knees, fasting on my behalf, asking for healing in Jesus' name. Millions of people, and I include myself in this, I also was involved. I I prayed for Nabil along with millions of people. Uh, But then early in 2017, after his wife had just suffered a miscarriage, Qureshi announced that treatment had not worked and that the cancer had spread. And then on Saturday, the 16th of September 2017, at the age of just 34, Nabil Qureshi died. That's weird, don't you reckon? That, that, that is strange. Why would God allow someone so useful, so helpful, so effective to die so young? Marilyn Stewart from the Baptist Seminary in New Orleans put it this way. She said, the Christian community has lost a great voice. Nabil could speak truth in a way few could. We need him, God, is how I prayed these last few months. The Christian community needs his courage, his wisdom, his boldness. Why would God do it? Meanwhile, many Muslim people took the opportunity to speak up. And they said Nabil's suffering and his early death proves that he was wrong about God. Proves that he was a heretic. Proves that he cannot be trusted. Most of the quotes I saw you couldn't repeat in polite company, but let me quote from just one person. Uh, Seeking Jesus, finding cancer. Nabil Qureshi sets the example for other non-believers who try to wage war against Almighty Allah. Anyone denying Allah will end up dying in a miserable condition, miserable condition like Nabil Qureshi. It is strange, isn't it? I mean, you would expect that if Nabil was right about God, if he was teaching the truth about God, if he was faithfully giving the message about Jesus, if he was, if he was useful in God's kingdom, you would expect that God would be good to him. You would expect that God would show his approval somehow by giving Nabil good things, by, by giving him success, by, by making him triumphant. Wouldn't you? Why would God allow him to die so soon and so painfully and give such ammunition to all all these opponents of Christianity? You can understand why many people might ask the question, if Nabil was really a trustworthy man of God, why did he suffer and die so young? Well, this evening we start this new series on the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, as I said before, is a letter uh, written by an early Christian leader. We call him an apostle because he's sent by the Lord Jesus Christ as a man by the name of Paul. And he's writing to a church in the city of Corinth, Corinth, which is now uh, in what is modern Greece. And as he wrote his letter, Paul was facing a situation a little bit the same as Nabil Qureshi. Paul, like Nabil Qureshi, was an itinerant evangelist. He travelled around the world teaching people the message of Jesus. 
But like with Nabil Qureshi, life wasn't easy for Paul. He faced all kinds of criticism, all kinds of persecution, all kinds of trouble. As we look through this letter together, we'll see dreadful, dreadful things that happened to the Apostle Paul. He faced trouble, persecution, hardship, sickness, suffering, rejection, shipwreck, all kinds of things. And historically, no, we know, historically we know that in less than 10 years after writing this letter, Paul had been violently murdered. Meanwhile, we learn in the letter, some new teachers had come to Corinth. And they were wealthy, and they were successful, and they were smooth talkers, and they were teaching a different message from Paul. To all appearances, it looked like God was favouring these new teachers. They were doing really well. Meanwhile, Paul, who had originally taught them the gospel, was suffering and and going through all sorts of terrible stuff. And so the Christians at Corinth were starting to ask the question, well, who do we trust? Who do we trust? It it looks like God is approving these new guys. Who who do we trust? Can we trust Paul? Did, Did he tell us the truth about Jesus? All right, well, let's dive into the letter. Let's dive in and have a look. Uh, Paul starts off by identifying himself, and he says he is an apostle of Jesus. By the will of God, personally commissioned, personally sent by the risen Jesus to bring the original message, the true message about Jesus, to the Corinthians and to this world. He's also accompanied by his friend and fellow worker, Timothy. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1, have a look with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. And Timothy, our brother. Paul now addresses his readers. He's writing to the Christians in this city of Corinth in Greece, as well as the surrounding area of Achaia. He offers them a gospel greeting, a grace that is kindness and peace from God the Father and from Jesus. Still in verse 1. To the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as you may know, we have a number of letters by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Quite a few letters by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And Paul follows a pattern in just about all of his letters. He starts off his letters by saying who he is, Paul, an apostle. He then greets his readers to the Corinthians or the Ephesians or whoever it is. And, And then the next thing that he does in nearly all of his letters is this. He thanks God for his readers. So he'll thank God for their faith. I thank God for your faith, or I thank God for your love, or I thank God for the gifts that he's given you, or something like that. He thanks God for the people that he's writing to. But in this letter, Paul changes the pattern. It's the only time he does this. He changes the pattern. It's the only time he changes it in this way. Uh, And instead of praising God for what he's doing in the lives of the people that he's writing to, Paul praises God for what he's doing in his own life. See the difference? He doesn't praise God for what he's doing in his readers' lives. He praises God for what God is doing in his own life. It's a very important change because it shows up Paul's concern. His concern that the Christians aren't thanking God for him. The Christians aren't trusting him. Because of his suffering, because of the things that are happening to him, the Christians are concerned that he can't be trusted. And so what he does here is he thanks God for the purposes that God has in his suffering and also in the comfort that he's received from God. 
Commentator David Garland puts it this way. Rather than giving thanks for what God is doing through this church, Paul needs them to give thanks for him and what God is doing in and through him. For some who evaluated him from a worldly perspective, Paul's unending sufferings cast doubt on his apostolic power and the shame that some attached to this travail subverted his authority in the church. Okay, so you see what he's doing? He's going to thank God for what God is doing in his life and show that God has his reasons for why Paul is suffering and they can trust him. He is teaching the truth. Uh, Paul starts off by praising God for, uh, for the way that he's comforted him in his troubles and suffering, for the way God has encouraged him, given him strength and courage to press on no matter what because of the gospel of Jesus. And Paul says that he's comforted him for a reason. It's so he will be able to help other people when they face trouble and suffering. Have a look at verse 3 with me, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us, that is Paul and Timothy, who comforts us in all our troubles so that, there's a purpose, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. There's a purpose. God has a reason for why Paul is suffering and being comforted. And Paul goes on to talk more about this, the reasons that God has. He says, firstly, God has a reason for his suffering. God has a reason for the distress that Paul goes through. And, and he says this, he says, he says that he is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. He's sharing in the sufferings of Christ for the salvation of the Corinthians. Sounds weird, doesn't it? Let's think about how it works. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead, he suffered for our sins so that we can be saved. Okay, Jesus suffered so that we can be saved. All right? But if the message about Jesus is going to get to a sinful world and say, I'm going to preach it to a sinful world, I'm going to have to suffer as I preach it. We live in a world opposed to the message of Jesus, a world of sinners who hate being confronted with God and their sin and their need for Jesus. We are part of a humanity that rejects the message of the cross, a humanity that persecutes those who share the message. And so if I'm going to share the gospel with the world, I'm going to have to suffer. Okay, so Jesus suffers for people's salvation. But if I'm going to share the message so they can be saved, I'm going to have to suffer as well. Do you understand? And in that sense, I am sharing in the sufferings of Jesus for people to be saved. See how it works? Paul says he shares in the sufferings of Christ. That's how it is in this world. People who share the message of Jesus have to suffer with him to see people saved. It's what Jesus said to expect. Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So God has a purpose in Paul's suffering. But God also comforts Paul. As Paul suffers for the sake of Jesus and reflects on the message of the gospel, he knows that God loves him because Jesus has died for him. He knows that there is hope beyond the grave. Even if he dies, Jesus is risen. 
And so there is hope and comfort and strength and he can keep on going. And we're going to see lots of this in the letter. He can keep on going. God comforts him and strengthens him with the message that Jesus died for him and rose again from the dead. And Paul says again, God comforts him for a purpose. It is so he can then help Christians like the Corinthians who suffer to patiently endure. By his only example of being comforted in the gospel, by his own example of perseverance, he can help others who suffer for Jesus. So can you see then what Paul is saying? There is a reason. God has his reasons both for Paul's suffering and also for his being comforted. And so he says, you Corinthians, I'm confident you should be willing to share with me in my sufferings and my comfort. Verse 5. Verse 5. For just... As we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, if we are troubled, if we are suffering, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's also for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same things we suffer. There's purpose in both the suffering and the comfort. And so, verse 7, our hope for you is firm. Because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. God has a good purpose in Paul's suffering. God has a good purpose in Paul's suffering. In his comfort, they can trust him. Uh, Paul now goes on to talk to the Corinthians about one specific instance of suffering that he's just recently faced. He was in Asia. That is, that's not China. That's modern-day Turkey. Um, and he's faced some kind of terrible trouble. He doesn't say exactly what it was. But he does say that he, fo- he thought for sure he would die. He thought this was the end. He thought it was all over Red Rover. But again, he says God has his reasons. His suffering actually helped him to rely on God who raises the dead rather than rely on himself. Verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul faced terrible suffering, suffering that even thought was the end for him, but he knew the hope of the gospel that is greater even than death. And then God delivered him. And Paul trusted God will continue to deliver him him from future suffering, And he trusts and he hopes that the Corinthians will join with him and support him and pray for him. And he trusts that their prayers will be effective because God delights to answer the prayers of his people and he delights to have have them thank him for answering their prayers. Verse 10, he has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him, on God, we have set our hope that he'll continue to deliver us As you help us by your prayers. You see, he wants them to trust him. He wants them to work with him. He wants them to help him. As you help us by your prayers. And then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Okay. As far as we're going today, the language is a little convoluted, but can you see see what's here in this first part of 2 Corinthians? Uh, Paul identifies himself. He's a true apostle. He greets his readers, grace and peace to you from God. And then 
Rather than giving thanks to God for what God is doing in their lives, he gives thanks to God for what God's doing in his own life. For the way that God has helped him and encouraged him through terrible sufferings and trials, including one recent awful trial. And Paul makes clear, God has his reasons. God has his reasons for allowing Paul to suffer. He suffers because that's what it takes to get the true gospel out to the world. It's sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, Paul's, Paul's suffering also helps him to rely on God who raised, raised Jesus from the dead, and not on himself. Uh, God has reasons for Paul's suffering and God has reasons for comforting him as well. God comforts Paul to enable him to comfort others to enable him to help people like the Corinthians to keep looking to Jesus, to persevere, to press on no matter what. Paul is a true apostle. He's preaching the true gospel. And the, Christians must, the Corinthian Christians must not get the wrong idea. The fact that Paul suffers is no indication of God's displeasure. It's no indication that they can't trust him. Let me put it this way. The lesson the Corinthians need to learn is this. Okay, we just made this up this morning. Failure does not equal falsehood and triumph does not equal truth. Did you get that? You like what I did with the F's and the T's there? Okay. Failure does not equal falsehood. You get that? Okay, just because you suffer, just because it doesn't mean that you're not telling the truth. Failure does not equal falsehood. Triumph does not equal truth. Just because you're successful and well-loved and everybody thinks you're great doesn't mean you're telling the truth. Okay, there's the lesson the Corinthians need to get. Failure does not equal falsehood. Triumph does not equal truth. All right. All right, let's think about applying this passage to ourselves. I've got three things that I want to talk about by way of application. Uh, first, I think it's a really important idea in here that God comforts us so that we can comfort others. That's the first thing I want to talk about. Second thing I want to talk about is this idea of Failure doesn't equal falsehood. Triumph doesn't equal truth. That success is no guarantee of truth. That's the second thing to talk about. And third thing, I think there are some lessons here for when we suffer. Okay, first point is this. God comforts us with the gospel so that we can comfort others. Uh, I remember uh, 21 years ago, I started uh, making some changes to the way that we did things at church. And there are couple of people who were here when that happened and they will tell you that uh, the church that we were in at that time was very very different to what it is now it wasn't even in this building it was in the building over there it was very old-fashioned played the pipe organ and we had all of these traditions and it was populated by elderly Caucasians okay that was that was our church kind of 40 elderly Caucasians Um, and 21 years ago I started making some changes to the way that we do things at church and I yeah, it didn't go well. Put, let me put it, it led to some really serious conflicts uh, to the point where a group of six elders uh, brought an action to take me to the presbytery, to the church courts, uh, asking to have me sacked from the church. Now, I'd only been in ministry a couple of years, didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, my son Joel was just one year old. Uh, Daniel was just born. Um, and uh, Carmelina was saying, what are you doing? I <laughs> You are totally crazy. We've got a one-year-old son, you've got a new baby boy, and you're making these changes, and they're going to sack you, and we're going to be out of a job, and we're going to have no money, and we're going to be on the, on the side of the streets begging. You know, what is going on here? <laughs> we were very, very stressed. Uh, but there was one minister, and he had been through some similar issues. And he got beside us, and he helped us. 
And the fact that he'd been through stuff similar to us and the fact that God had helped him, that was part of what made his advice and encouragement so helpful to us. Uh, the fact that he had bravely pressed on, trusting Jesus, looking to heaven, doing what he believed was best rather than what was popular, as, as he told us about his story and, and encouraged us, well, that helped us to take a can of harden up and just get on with it, basically. Just toughen up and do it, press on. That's often the way it works, isn't it? It's the people who've been through something similar who can really speak to you in your situation. Uh, we had a very similar experience on the two occasions when we had miscarriages, my wife and I. Um, lots of people encouraged us and comforted us. They pointed us to the reality of resurrection and heaven. And this morning we baptised a couple of babies and we remembered again God's wonderful promises to us and to our children and people reminded us of that. But it was, it was the people who had experienced God's comfort in the face of their own miscarriages who were really able to connect with us. Uh, friends, if God has helped you to persevere through tough times, if you have experienced what it is to find hope and strength in Christ in times of suffering, don't waste that experience, will you? Don't waste it. It's a gift to you from God. Use it to encourage other people. Tell other people who are suffering about the hope and strength that are available in Jesus. God has a purpose in your suffering and he's a purpose in comforting you with the gospel. If you get the opportunity, use it. Comfort others with the comfort that God has given to you. Now, I should say this is something that Nabil Qureshi did quite magnificently as he died, as he suffered with cancer. As he suffered, as he got sicker and sicker and sicker, he um, kept making a series of videos series of videos where he encouraged people to, to look to Jesus and to heaven and to press on. Let me quote from one thing he said. I was typing this down as I was listening to him, uh, listening to a video of him the other day. He said this. He's very sick as he says this. knows he's dying and he says, the resurrection of Jesus is true and it means this for you. If it comes to a point in your life where it seems like there is no hope, if it comes to a point in your life where it seems like even death is inevitable and there's no way to escape it, well, death is not the end. The resurrection of Jesus is true. Death is not the end. There's more. There's hope no matter what. I mean, those are powerful words said by anybody, but when they're said by a guy dying of cancer and facing his own death, that is when they're really powerful. God comforted Nabil so that he could comfort others. He didn't waste the opportunity. Let's not waste the opportunity ourselves, friends. That was point number one. God comforts us so that we can comfort others. Our second application point is this. Uh, triumph is no guarantee of truth. Okay, triumph is no guarantee of truth. Success is no guarantee of truth. Uh, Paul's ministry was a true ministry. He told the truth about Jesus. He gave the original and right message about Jesus, but he suffered. His ministry was marked by rejection, by persecution. Paul was telling the truth. God allowed him to suffer, and God had his reasons for allowing him to suffer. He was sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, he, he was comforted by God so that he could offer comfort to others. His suffering and his comfort, 
God has had his reasons for both. And Paul was telling the truth. Are the new teachers in Corinth? They looked successful. They were popular. They were doing well. They spoke beautifully, but, but they were teaching lies. So it's an important point to learn, friends. In God's economy, triumph is no guarantee of truth. Success doesn't mean you can believe people. And suffering is not necessarily an indication of God's displeasure. In fact, if anything, it's the opposite. We should expect in this world that faithful gospel ministry will bring suffering. We should expect that proper gospel ministry, where people are challenged about their sin and encouraged to rely on Jesus and not themselves, will bring persecution and anger. And it's where a ministry is successful and popular and everyone loves them, that's actually when we need to be a bit careful. We need to ask, is there something going on here? Why does nobody hate them? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Jesus said this. He said, blessed are, people when, blessed are you when people hate you. When they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their ancestors treated the true prophets. But woe to you when everyone speaks well of you for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. It was true of Nabil Qureshi. He suffered an extraordinary amount of opposition. Hated and vilified by thousands upon thousands of people. Why? Because he bravely and faithfully challenged the lies of Islam. And then contrary to what people might say, the fact that he suffered and died so young, it does not mean that what he taught was untrue. It does not mean that God was unhappy with him. The simple fact is we don't know what it means. It's just part of this horrible, messy, fallen, sinful world we don't know what God's reason was for taking, him, for taking him so young. We do know this, though. Failure does not mean falsehood. Triumph does not mean truth. In God's economy, it's not as simple as that. This is a very important point, friends, because in our culture, we live in a culture where successful people are treated as experts. They write books, they give seminars, and everyone's supposed to listen as though what they say is gospel, is true, is right. And this is just as true in church culture as it is in secular culture. Some minister, part of a church, it grows really big. Suddenly everyone thinks they've got the secret. They've got the key. They must be getting it right. And so everyone reads their books and everyone watches their TV shows and attends their seminars and tries to emulate them. This passage makes it clear. Popularity, success are not a guarantee of truth. And so what we need to do, rather than getting on whatever is the latest bandwagon, what we need to do is to keep coming back to God's word. Keep coming back to God's word to find the true message about Jesus. Check everything you hear against God's word. Keep your Bible open as you listen. Whether that's to me or anybody from this pulpit and certainly anybody that you hear on the TV or anywhere else, keep your Bible open. Look to God's word to find the true message about Jesus. Look to God's word to find the way God wants us to do things. And then doing things God's way, doing things according to the truth, it might be a total flop. Or it might be successful. But success is no guarantee of truth. You get the point? So first point was, God comforts us so we can comfort others. Second point, triumph, success, no guarantee of truth. Final thing I want to say uh, is that we can learn from Paul's suffering here when we suffer. So many people, when they suffer, 
they think that God hates them or is punishing them or he's forgotten them or something like that. I was talking to a lady just about a week or so ago. She is in her 80s, this lady. Right? She's been a Christian for longer than I've been alive. She's had excellent health all her life. God has blessed her in so many ways. She's been a successful, fruitful Christian. And at the moment, she is sick, quite sick. And she said to me the other day, she said, Jeff, I think that God is punishing me. And I said, I think maybe you're in your 80s and you've had a pretty good run. (laughs) (laughs) Friends, it's not necessarily true that God is punishing us or unhappy with us or forgotten us when we're suffering. It's possible. It's possible that we're suffering for some crazy thing that we're doing. And we should examine ourselves and, and, and think about, is there something going on here? Is God saying something to me? But it's not necessarily the case that God is angry. And so if we ourselves suffer, what we need to do is this. We need to do what God tells us to do here in this passage. Firstly, we need to find comfort in the gospel. Doesn't matter how terrible your suffering is, you know that God loves you because he gave Jesus to die for you. That's his eternal expression of love and it does not and will not change no matter what your circumstances. It doesn't matter what you're suffering, what your circumstances, it doesn't matter even if you are facing death, we believe in a risen saviour and the gospel teaches us that a day is coming when there will be vindication and justice and salvation. There is genuine comfort to be found in the gospel. I think there's also real comfort to be found in the example of people before us who have faithfully held on to Jesus through suffering and known what it is to find comfort in the gospel. People like the Apostle Paul, people like Nabil Qureshi. God's comfort of them can comfort us, I think, and help us to endure, can't it? Uh, verse 9, maybe we need to learn what, uh, what Paul learned there, that we need to rely on God who raises the dead, not on ourselves. Maybe that's what God is teaching us in our suffering. Or, or verse 11, there's another good response, isn't there? Keep on praying. Keep praying to the God who offers eternal comfort. I think there are some really good ideas here for us as we face suffering, but fundamentally, we need to find the comfort of the gospel. Friends, God has purpose in our suffering. God has purpose in our comfort. We, don't, we might not know what it is, but we do know that he loves us. We do know that he comforts us. We do know that he's worthy of our trust. We do know that he hears our prayers. So let's pray to him now. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your glorious mercy to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that his death and resurrection pays for our sin and shows the absolute seal and stamp of your eternal love for us. Thank you that nothing can separate us from this love. And so, Father, would you please comfort us in our troubles? And would you please help us not, not, to, not to miss the opportunity that suffering and comfort brings, but to ourselves be comforters of others. Help us to persevere. Help us to help each other to persevere. Help us not to be tricked by the successful, showy, uh, false teaching that is around us. Help us instead to stick with your word no matter what. And, Father, please strengthen us to persevere to the end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.